हेलो फ्रेंड्स वेरी गुड मॉर्निंग नाउ वी आर गोइंग टू कवर रेस्ट ऑफ द पार्ट फ्रॉम चैप्टर सेवन सो लेट स्टार्ट फाइव पीज ऑफ फिनेंशियल इंक्लूजन लेट मी एंड विद विजन ऑफ हाउ द आर बी आई कैन स्पीड अप एंड इनहस फिनेंशियल इंक्लूजन ऑफ द काइंड आई हैव जस्ट आउटलाइंड फिनेंशियल इंक्लूजन इन माई व्यू इज अबाउट गेटिंग फाइव थिंग्स राइट product place price protection and profit if we are to draw in the poor we need products that address their needs a safe place to save a reliable way to send and receive money a quick way to borrow in times of need or to escape the clutches of the money lender easy to understand accident life and health insurance and an avenue to engage in saving for old age simplicity and reliability are key what one thinks one is paying for is what one should get without a hidden process or opt outs to trip one up the rbi is going to uh, nudge banks to offer a basic suite of products to address financial needs two other attributes of products are very important they should be easy to access at low transactions cost in the past this meant that the place of delivery that is the bank branch had to be close to the customer so key element of the inclusion programs was to expand bank branching in unbanked areas today with various other means of reaching the customer such as the mobile phone or the business correspondent we can be more agnostic about the means by which the customer is reached in other words place today need not mean physical proximity it can mean electronic proximity or proximity via correspondence towards this end we have liberalized uh, the regulations on bank business correspondence encouraged banks and uh, uh, mobile companies to form alliances and uh, and started the process of licensing payment banks the transactions cost of uh, obtaining the product including the price the intermediary charges should be low since every unbanked individual likely consumes low volumes of financial services uh, to begin with the provider should automate transactions as far as far as possible to reduce costs and use employees that are local and are uh, commensurately uh, commensurately uh, paid furthermore any, any regulatory burden should be minimal with these objectives in mind the rbi has started the process of licensing small local banks and uh, in re-examining know your customer norms with a view to simplifying them last month we removed a major hurdle in the way of migrant workers and people living in makeshift structure makeshift structures obtaining a bank account that are providing proof of current address new and inexperienced customers will require protection the rbi is beefing up the consumer protection core emphasizing the need for suitable products that are simple and easy to understand we are all working with the government on expanding financial literacy teaching the poor the intricacies of finance has to move beyond literacy camps and into schools banks that lean to the entrepreneurial uh, poor should uh, find ways to advise them on business management too or uh, find ways to engage ngos and organizations like nabard in the process we are also strengthening the customer grievance redressal mechanism while looking to expand supervision market intelligence and coordination with law and order to reduce the proliferation of fly by night operators 
Finally, while mind, ma mandated targets are useful in indicating, uh, indicating ambition and allowing banks to anticipate a large enough scale so as to make investments, financial inclusion cannot be achieved without it being profitable. So the last P is that there should be profits at the bottom of the pyramid. For instance, the government should be willing to pay reasonable commissions punctually for benefits transfers and bankers should be able to charge reasonable and transparent fees or interest rates for offering services to the poor. Let me conclude. One of the greatest dangers to the growth of developing countries is the uh, middle income trap where chronic cap capitalism creates oligarchies that slow down growth. If the debate during the elections is any pointer, uh, this is a very real concern of the public in India today. To avoid this trap and to strengthen the independent democracy our leaders won for us 67 years ago, we have to improve public services, especially those targeted at the poor. A key mechanism to improve uh, these services is through financial inclusion which is going to be an important part of the government and the RBI's plans in the coming years. I hope many of you in this audience will join in ensuring we are successful. Thank you. Uh, part 4, section 4 from chapter 7. I was invited by the Chief Minister of Goa to speak at the Didi Kosambi Ideas Festival in Goa on 28th of February 2015. Since this was an Ideas Festival in honor of the great polymath, I reached into my research interest and a broader analysis of political economy to once again make the case for financial inclusion. Democracy, Inclusion and Prosperity Thank you for inviting me to this festival of ideas. Since uh, this festival is about ideas, I am not going to tax you with the Reserve Bank's views on monetary policy which are by now well known. Instead, I want to talk about something I have been studying for many years, the development of liberal market democracy. I, uh, In doing so, I will wear my hat as a professor in the field known as political economy and discard my RBI hat for the time being. Uh, if you came here expecting more insights on the path of interest rates as I expect many of you did, uh, let me apologize for, a for a disappointing you. My starting point is the truism that people want to live in a safe prosperous country where uh, they enjoy freedom of thought and action and where they can exercise their democratic rights to choose their government. But how do countries ensure political freedom and economic prosperity? Why do the two seem to go together and what more, if anything, does India have to do to ensure it has uh, these necessary underpinnings for uh, prosperity and continued political freedom? These are enormously important questions, but uh, given their nature, they will not be settled in one speech. Think of my talk today, therefore, as a contribution to the debate. Fukuyama's Three Pillars of a Liberal Democratic State In his uh, magisterial two-volume analysis of the emergence of political systems around the world, the origins of political order from pre-human times to the French Revolution 2011 and political order and political decay from the industrial revolution to the globalization of democracy 2014. Political scientist 
फ्रांसिस फुकियामा बिल्ड्स ऑन द वर्क ऑफ इज मेंटर सैम्युअल हटिंगटन पॉलिटिकल ऑर्डर इन चेंजिंग सोसाइटीज 1968 टू आर्ग्यू दैट लिबरल डेमोक्रेसीज विच सीम टू बी बेस्ट एट फोस्टरिंग पोलिटिकल फ्रीडम्स एंड इकोनॉमिक सक्सेस टेन टू हैव थ्री इंपॉर्टेंट पीलर्स स्ट्रॉन्ग गवर्नमेंट रूल ऑफ लॉ एंड डेमोक्रेटिक अकाउंटेबिलिटी I propose in this talk to start by summarizing my necessarily imprecise reading of Fukuyama's ideal ideals to you. I would urge you to read the books to get their full richness. I will then go on to argue that he leaves out a fourth pillar free markets which are essential to make the liberal democracy prosperous. I will warn that these pillars are weakening in industrial countries because of rising inequality of opportunity and end with lessons for India. Consider Fukuyama's three pillars in greater detail. Strong government does not mean one that is only militarily powerful or uses its uh, intelligence apparatus to sniff out enemies of the state. Instead, A strong government is also one that provides an effective and fair administration through clean, motivated and competent administrators who can deliver good governance. Rule of law means that government's actions are constrained by what we Indians would term dharma by historical and widely understood code of moral and righteous behavior enforced by religious, cultural and judicial uh, authority. and democratic accountability means that the government has to be popularly accepted with the people having the right to throw unpopular corrupt or incompetent rulers out fukuyama makes a more insightful point that uh, simply that uh, all three um, sorry fukuyama makes a more insightful point than simply that all three traditional aspects of the state executive judiciary and legislature are needed to balance one another in sharp contrast to the uh, radical libertarian view that the best government is the minimal night watchman which primarily uh, protects life and pro- and and uh, property rights while enforcing contracts or the radical marxist view that the e- that the need for the government disappears as a class conflict ends fukuyama as did huntington emphasizes the importance of a strong government in even a developed country no no matter how thuggish or arbitrary the government in a tin pot dictatorship these are weak governments not strong ones their military or police can terrorize the unarmed citizenry but cannot provide decent law and order or stand up to a determined armed opposition their administration cannot provide sensible economic policy good schools or clean drinking water strong governments need to be peopled by those who can provide needed public goods they require expertise motivation and integrity realizing the importance of strong government developing countries constantly request a multilateral institutions for help in enhancing their governance capacity strong governments may not however move in the right direction hitler provided germany with extremely effective administration the trains ran on time as did the trains during our own emergency in 1975 to 77 he was a strong government but hitler took germany efficiently and determinedly 
on a path to ruin, overriding the rule of law and dispensing with elections. It is not sufficient that the trains run on time. They have to go in the right direction at the desired time. The physical rail network guiding the trains could be thought of as analogous to rule of law, while the process by which a consensus is built around the train schedule could be thought of as a democratic accountability. But why do we need both rule of law and democratic accountability to keep strong government on the right path? Would democratic accountability not be enough to constrain a dictatorial, uh, dictatorial government? Perhaps not. Hitler was elected to power and until Germany started suffering shortages and reversals in uh, World War II enjoyed the support of the majority of the people, the rule of law is needed to prevent the tyranny of the majority that can arise in a democracy as well as to ensure that the basic rules of the game are preserved over time so that the government uh, sorry, so that the environment is predictable no matter which government comes to power. By ensuring that all citizens have inalienable rights and protections, the rule of law constrains the majority's behavior towards the minorities and by maintaining a predictable economic environment against populist democratic instincts, the rule of law ensures that businesses can invest securely today for the future. What about asking the question the other way? Would rule of law not be enough? Probably not. Especially in a vibrant developing society, rule of law provides a basic slow changing code of conduct that, that cannot be violated by either government or the citizenry. But that by itself may not be sufficient to accommodate the aspirations of new emerging groups or the consequences of new technologies or ideas. Democratic accountability ensures the government responds to the wishes of the mass of the citizenry, allowing emerging groups to gain influence through political negotiation and competition with others. Even if groups cannot see their programs translated into policy, democracy allows them to blow off steam non-violently. So both rule of law and democratic accountability check and balance strong government in complementary ways. Where do these three pillars come from? Much of Fukuyama's work is focused on tracing the development of each pillar in different societies. He suggests that the nature of states we see today is largely explained by their historical experience. For instance, China had long periods of chaos. Most recently before the communists came to power, groups engaged in total war against one another. Such unbridled military competition meant groups had to organize themselves as a hierarchical military units with rulers having unlimited powers. When eventually group was victorious over the others, it was natural for it to impose centralized autocratic rule to ensure that chaos did not reemerge. To rule over the large geographic area of the country, China needed a well-developed elite bureaucracy, hence the mandarins chosen by exam based on their learning. So China had strong, unconstrained, effective government whenever it was united and uh, Fukuyama argues unlike Western Europe or India did not have strong alternative sources of power founded in religion or culture to impose rule of law. In Western Europe, by contrast, the Christian church imposed constraints on what the ruler could do. So military competition coupled with constraints on the ruler imposed by canon law led to the emergence of both strong government and rule of law. 
in India, he argues, the caste system led to division of labor, uh, which ensured that in, uh, that entire populations could uh, never be devoted totally to the war efforts. So, through much of history, war was never as harsh or a military competition between states as fierce as in China. As a result, the historical pressure for Indian states to develop strong governments that uh, intruded into every facet of society was muted at the same time however the codes of just behavior for rulers emanating uh, from ancient indian scriptures served to constrain any arbitrary exercise of power by indian rulers india therefore had a weaker government constrained further by rule of law and uh, according to fukuyama these differing histories explain why government in china today is seen as effective but unrestrained while government capacity in india is seen as weak but the indian governments are rarely autocratic uh, rarely autocratic any of these grand uh, generalizations can and should be Debated. Fukuyama does not claim history is the destiny but does suggest a very strong influence. Of course, the long influence of history and culture is less perceptible uh, when it comes to democracy where uh, some countries like India have taken to it like a duck to water. A vibrant, accountable democracy does not only imply that people cast their vote uh, freely every five years. It requires the full mix of uh, uh, a raucous investigative press public debate uh, uninhibited by political correctness uh, many political parties are representing varied constituencies and a variety of non-governmental organizations organizing and representing interests it will continue to be a source of academic debate why a country like india has uh, taken to democracy while some of its neighbors with similar historical and cultural past have not I will not dwell on this. Instead, I turn to a different question that Fukuyama does not address. Clearly, strong governments are needed for countries to have the government governance to prosper. Equally, free markets underpin, underpin prosperity. But uh, why is it that every rich country is also liberal democracy subject to rule of law? I will make two points in what follows. First, Free enterprise and the political freedom emanating from democratic accountability and rule of law can be mutually reinforcing so a free enterprise system should be thought of as the fourth pillar underpinning liberal market democracies. Second, the bedrock on which all four pillars stand is a, broad, is a, uh, is a broadly equitable distribution of economic capabilities among the citizenry that uh, bedrock is fissuring in uh, industrial countries while it has to be strengthened in emerging markets like India. Free enterprise and political freedom. Why why, why why are political freedoms in a country of which representative democracy is a central component and free enterprise mutually supportive? There is of course one key similarity, both a vibrant democracy and a vibrant free enterprise system seek to create a level playing field which enhances competition. In the democratic arena, the political entrepreneur competes with other politicians for the citizens vote based on his past record and future policy agenda. In the economic sphere, the promoter competes with uh, other entrepreneurs for the consumer's rupee based on the quality of the product he sells. But uh, there is also at least one key difference. 
Democracy treats individuals equally with uh, every adult getting one vote. The free enterprise system by contrast empowers consumers based on how much income they get and property they own. What then prevents the median voter in a democracy from voting to dispossess the rich and successful? And why do the latter not erode the political rights of the ordinary voter? This uh, fundamental tension between democracy and uh, free enterprise appear to be accentuated in the recent US presidential elections as uh, President Barack Obama appealed to middle class anger about its stagnant economic prospects, while former Massachusetts uh, Governor Mitt Romney appealed to business people disgruntled about higher taxes and expanding health care subsidies. One reason that uh, the median voter rationally agrees to protect the, the property of the rich and to tax them moderately may be that she sees the rich as more efficient managers of that property and therefore as a creators of jobs and prosperity that everyone will benefit from. So to the extent that the rich are self-made and uh, um, have come out winners in a competitive, fair and transparent market, society may be better off allowing them to own and manage their wealth, settling in return for a reasonable share of their product produce as a taxes. The more, however, that the rich are seen as idle or crooked, as having simply inherited or worse gained their wealth uh, nefariously, the more the median voter should be willing to vote for a, a tough regulations and punitive taxes on them. In some emerging markets today, for example, property rights of the rich do not enjoy widespread popular support because so many of a country's fabulously wealthy oligarchs are uh, seen as having acquired their wealth through dubious means. They, they do reach because they managed the system, not because they managed their business as well. When the government goes after rich tycoons, few voices are raised in protest and uh, as the rich quote uh, to the authorities to protect their wealth, a strong check of uh, a strong check on official arbitrariness disappears. The government is free to become more autocratic. Consider in contrast a competitive free enterprise system with a level playing field for all. Such a system generally tends to permit the most efficient to acquire wealth. The fairness of the competition improves perceptions of legitimacy more or under conditions of fair competition the process of creative destruction tends to pull down badly managed inherited wealth replacing it with new and dynamic wealth great inequality build up over generations does not become a source of great popular resentment on the contrary everyone can dream that they too will become a bill gates or nandan nilkeni when such universal aspirations seem uh, plausible the the system gains added democratic support the rich confident of popular legitimacy can then use the independence that accompanies wealth to limit arbitrary government support rule of law and protect democratic rights free enterprise and democracy sustain each other there are therefore deeper reasons for why democratic systems uh, uh, supports property rights and free enterprise
uh, than the cynical argument that votes and legislators can be bought and uh, the capitalists have the money the cynics can only be right for a while without popular support wealth is protected only by increasingly coercive measures ultimately such a system loses uh, any any vestige of either democracy or free enterprise. The bedrock, equitable distribution of economic capabilities. There is, however, a growing concern across the industrial world. The free enterprise system works well when participants enter the competitive arena with fundamental equal chances of success. Given the subsequent level playing field, the winner's road to riches depends on greater effort, innovation and occasionally luck. But success is not predetermined because no class of participants have, uh, sorry, because no class of participants has had a fundamentally different and superior preparation for the competition. If, however, some group's economic capabilities are sufficiently differentiated by preparation, the level playing field is no longer sufficient to equalize a priori chances of success. Instead, the free enterprise system will be seen as a disproportionately favoring the better prepared. Democracy is unlikely to support it, nor are the rich and successful as likely to support democracy. Such a scenario is no longer unthinkable in a, a number of Western democracies. Prosperity seems increasingly unreachable for many because a good education, which seems to be today's um, passport to riches, is unaffordable for many in the middle class. Quality higher education, uh, quality higher educational institutions are dominated by the children of the rich, not because they have unfairly bought their way in, but because they simply have been taught and supported better by expensive schools and private tutors. Because uh, middle class parents do not have the ability to give their children similar capabilities, they do not see the system as fair. Support for the free enterprise system is eroding as witnessed by the popular popularity of books like Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st century while the influence of uh, illiberal parties on both the left and right who, who promise to suppress competition, finance and trade is increasing. The mutual support between free enterprise and democracy is uh, giving way to antagonism. Moreover, as the class differences cre create differentiated capabilities among the public, governments can either continue choosing the most capable applicants for positions but uh, risk become but risk becoming unrepresentative of the classes or they can choose representativeness or ability and risk eroding effectiveness. Neither biased nor ineffective government can administer well, so government capacity may also be threatened. Thus, as the bedrock of equitable distribution of capabilities has started developing cracks in industrial countries, all four pillars supporting the liberal free market democracy have also started swaying. This is to my mind an enormously important concern that will occupy states across the world in the years to come. Lessons for India Let me conclude with lessons for India. India inherited a kind of democracy during British rule and has made it uh, thoroughly and uh, vibrantly her own. Of the three pillars that uh, Fukuyama emphasizes the strongest in India is therefore a democratic accountability. India also adheres broadly to the rule of law where 
arguably we may have a long way to go as fukuyama has emphasized is in the capacity of the government and by this mean this i mean regulators like the rbi also to deliver governance and public services this is not to say that we do not have areas of excellence proven or throughout central and state governments whether it is the building of the new delhi metro the reach of the public distribution system in tamil nadu or the speed of the rollout of the pradhan mantri janadhana yojana but that such capabilities have to permeate every tehsil in every state more or than in many areas of government and regulation as the economy develops we need more specialists with the domain knowledge and experience for instance well trained economists are at a premium throughout the government and there are far too few indian economic service of officers to go around an important difference from the historical experience of other countries is that uh, elsewhere um, strong government has typically emerged there first and uh, it is then restrained by rule of law and democratic accountability in india we have the positive situation today with the strong institutions like the judiciary opposition parties the free pay, press and ngos whose aim is to check government excess however necessary government function is sometimes hard to distinguish from excess we will have to strengthen government and regulatory capabilities resisting the temptation to implant layers and layers of checks and balances even before capacity has taken root we must choose a happy medium between giving the administration unchecked power and creating complete paralysis recognizing that our task is different from the one that confronted the west when it developed or even the task faced by other asian economies for instance a business approval process that mandates numerous government surveys in remote areas should also consider our administrative capacity to do those surveys well and on time if it does not provide for that capacity it ensures there will be no movement forward similarly if we create a, a multiple appellate a uh, process against government or regulatory action that is slow and undiscriminating we contain government excess but also risk halting necessary government actions if the government or regulator is less effective in preparing its case than private parties we ensure that the appellate process largely biases justice towards those who have the resources to use it rather than rectifying a miscarriage of justice so in thinking through reforms we may want to move from the theoretical ideal of how a system might work in a country with enormous administrative capacity to how it would work in the actual indian situation let me emphasize uh, we need checks and balance uh, but we should ensure a balance of checks we cannot have escaped from the license permit raj only to end up in the appellate raj Finally a heartening recent development is that more people across the country are becoming well educated and equipped to compete one of the most enjoyable experiences at the RBI is a meeting the children of our class 4th employees many of whom hold jobs as a business executives in a private sector firms as across the country education makes our youth upwardly mobile Uh, public support for free enterprise has expanded increasingly therefore the political dialogue has also moved from giving handouts to creating jobs so long as we modulate the pace of liberalization to uh, to the pace at which we broaden economic capabilities it is likely that the public will be supportive of reform 
This also means that if we are to embed the four pillars supporting prosperity and political freedom firmly in our society, we have to continue to nurture the broadly equitable distribution of economic capabilities among our people. Economic inclusion by which I mean easing access to quality education, nutrition, healthcare, finance and markets to all our citizens is therefore a necessity for a sustainable growth. It is also obviously a moral imperative. Postscript. One name in this entire speech proved controversial, Hitler. If I had known the connections that would be made on social media, I would not have used it. The speech was about the need to remedy the weakness of government capacity in general in India with no specific administration in mind. It was instead construed as a warning against strong government, specifically the current administration. I could not, however, bulletproof my speeches against any and all imagined interpretations. So now we are going to, uh, in next ap uh, episode, we will see uh, section 5th from chapter 7. So thank you. You will enjoy it. Thank you.